Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Isaac Lyman. Based in Utah, Isaac is a software engineer and popular writer whose work can be found on dev.to, Medium, and his website at isaaclyman.com. Isaac is the editor of the LeanPub book, Your First Year in Code, A Complete Guide for New and Aspiring Developers. The book is full of practical advice from a number of different people for getting started in a career as a programmer. In this interview, we're going to talk about Isaac's background and career, professional interests, uh, the book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as an author. So thank you, Isaac, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, where you grew up and how you first found yourself interested in software and programming. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so I have pretty much grown up my whole life in Utah. And uh, my older brother is a computer programmer. Um, in fact, right now we work at the same company. But when I was probably 12 or 13 years old, um, he was in high school and already gainfully employed as a programmer writing uh, Visual Basic, I believe. And um, he had a couple of PDFs on the family computer. And I opened one up one day, uh, C++ for Dummies was the title. And, uh, you know, I read through the first several chapters and then I hit the chapter on pointers and got confused and gave up. Um, and then I kind of, it, it was rinse and repeat on that for a while. I, I played around a lot with basic C++ and really got interested in uh, all the things code could do. And uh, over the years, I branched out into Python and HTML and a couple other languages. Um, but where I really struck gold was uh, my second year of college when I, uh, I ran out of money and uh, managed to pick up a job in technical support uh, on campus. And uh, there were days when there was, there was nothing broken, nothing to fix. So um, on those days, rather than you know, uh, spend a lot of time watching Netflix or whatever my coworkers were doing. I, um, I spent some time building a website and that was the first version of IsaacLyman.com, which is, um, well, it's, it's not, it wasn't as nice as it is now. So, um, but I learned JavaScript and, uh, HTML and CSS and, uh, how they all worked together. And that was the beginning of my career really. And, uh, as I gather from your bio, uh, you were an English major in college. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I, I have a doctorate in English myself, uh, after which I went into investment banking. So I'm familiar with uh, the sort of pattern <laughs> of, uh, you know, majoring in English and then doing something that people normally wouldn't consider to be related to it. Uh, what, what drew you to, to study English? Well, my original plan was to go to law school. And so English is a very traditional path to law school, um, almost so traditional that they don't recommend it anymore because you want to stand out. But I had done so well in English in high school um, and had such an interest in it that I decided to do it anyway. Um, you know, it's interesting that you bring up how how English majors tend to branch out um, because if uh, looking at it, it seemed like all of my classes were geared towards becoming an English professor, which obviously um, not everyone who majors in English can do that. And uh, what surprised me has been how transferable those skills are. Uh, you know, if you can look through a five-page essay and spot a missing semicolon, you can probably do the same with 100 lines of code. 
And so, um, and that's just the beginning. I found that um, it's not as big of a leap as most people think it is when they hear kind of where I came from. Yeah, it's 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 one of the one of the sort of cute phrases I have for explaining um, one of the benefits of studying English seriously is that it gives you a power you have to possess in order to perceive it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's only once you've understood how to construct persuasive arguments based on evidence that you've gleaned spontaneously uh, in multi-clausal sentences like this one, uh, mm -hmm. that you, it's only once you've unlocked that, that you, that you see really how applicable that power is in all different, different aspects of, of lives and careers. And, uh, you are the founder of a company called Novelist LLC that has as a product, Edward, the app, uh, mm -hmm. which people can find at edwardtheapp.com. Uh, I just signed up for it and started poking around it myself. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, Edward the App and, and uh, what it is and how you came to create it. Yeah. Well, here's the the elevator pitch is um, if whenever I meet someone that's tried to write a novel, um, most people, according to my research, most people have tried to do that in a standard word processor. Um, so Word or Google Docs or uh, WordPerfect or what have you. Um, and those are fantastic pieces of software, but people find out pretty quickly that they're not made for long form writing. Um, anything longer than 20 pages just becomes impossible to navigate in a word processor. And so, um, you know, one of my, one of my goals is to write a novel and, uh, I always get stuck around that point where, uh, the novel after, you know, 20, 25 pages just becomes an impenetrable linear wall of text. And so um, I took all the things I've learned about writing over the years and all the things that I wished word processors could do and put them into a web app. And um, it's, it's pretty small right now. I've got uh, just over 800 users worldwide. Uh, but the people that catch the vision... Um, tend to be really obsessed with it because it's focused on novels and it does things that no other app does. Um, it's really unique. So, um, it has a, you know, it has a tab like interface where each tab is a chapter of the book. Um, and it has outlining tools and, uh, plotting tools, um, that let you kind of, kind of avoid staring at a blank page ever because that's kind of paralyzing. Um, and then it also has, uh, and this is this is something that I'd, I haven't ever seen in another app, is um, tools that help you brainstorm uh, prompted writing. So if you're looking for um, a prompt to help you flesh out a character or a setting, um, or you're, you've just got writer's block and you need some, some random stuff to get your brain juices flowing, uh, there are automated workshops that you can hop into with the click of a button and uh, they'll give you random prompts um, just to get things moving again. And so it really is a it's hoping to be a complete solution for people who want to write a novel, especially if they've never done it before. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, uh, you know, we've at, at LeanPub, we've got some experience ourselves with writing uh, writing tools um, uh, and. Uh, in particular, uh, one thing that I like about Edward the app is the uh, outlining features um, mm -hmm. that I discovered. Uh, I'm a big outliner 
myself. Um, is that something when, when you're writing is, do you outline first? Uh, you know, I, sometimes I do, um, you know, in the writing world, they tend to divide people into two buckets. There's the outliners and the pantsers. Um, pantsers being people who fly by the seat of their pants, so to speak. So, um, you know, Stephen King, for example, is a pantser. He uh, he just kind of writes without knowing what's going to happen. He dreams up situations and, and watches, uh, so to speak, how his characters react. But... Uh, as I've looked into it, I, my understanding is that everyone is an outliner, just sometimes not in the same order. Um, so some people outline ahead of time and pantsers are really just people who outline after the fact. Um, cause there's, you know, there are all, there are all kinds of, of things you've got to tie together in a novel and you really can't do that without some kind of overview. So, uh, the goal with Edwards is to be out agnostic, um, as to that, as to which bucket you're in. Um, if you out, like to outline ahead of time, you can definitely do that. There's a dedicated page for it. And if you like to outline after the fact, um, that's just as easy because you've got the side-by-side -side view where you can read what you've written and then take notes on the other side um, without ever navigating away. Um, so I, as for myself, um, I, I kind of fly between those. Um, I Sometimes I want to outline something ahead of time, and sometimes I just need to... Um, to take what I've got and see where it goes. Um, and so I, you know, Edward being the app that I wished existed, it, it doesn't really have a preference between those. It's really interesting uh, to me that you bring up Stephen King um, uh, and being a pantser. That's a term that's new to me, but it totally makes sense. Um, uh, I stopped reading the gunslinger novels. I don't know if you, if you read, if you read any of those. I haven't, um, no. Yeah, I stopped reading them because it became clear that he had no idea where he was going. <laughs> uh, and I, I felt like I was being, uh, you know, pardon my French, fucked with mm -hmm. uh, by the author. Uh, and, and there's, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, from an author's perspective, sort of being a free pantser uh, might be very attractive. But once a reader figures out that you have no idea where you're going, they can sometimes feel a little bit let down. Yeah. Well, and one of the jobs of an author, if you're a pantser, is to make sure the reader doesn't know that you're a pantser. Like you, you, I think of it like deposits and withdrawals. You have to deposit loose ends and um, things that don't make sense yet and mysteries so that you have something to resolve later so your story feels like it was planned. Um, and, of course, the other option, I mean, if you, if you know who Brandon Sanderson is, he's probably the world's foremost outliner. Um, He's just got, you know, hundreds of pages of outline written before he even starts his novels. And um, I think it would be very hard for him to achieve the level of tightness in his novels if he didn't outline like that. He's it really is incredible how airtight his plots are. So I, there are advantages to either side. But, yeah, I think if you can tell that the author is pantsing, that's a turnoff. And I, I, that happens to me more with TV than with novels, but I think it's the same thing. You got to feel like they know where they're going. Yeah, I stopped watching Lost for the same for the mm. same reason. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, sorry, I should qualify. I said the Gunslinger novels. That's just my pet term for the the Dark Tower uh, oh, okay. series. Um, and yeah, Brandon Sanderson. So I I I'm just looking him up, but yeah, he's the one guy who finished uh, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Wheel Time, of time. <laughs> which was like. I, I get the impression 
from what I've read of those novels, very outlined. Um. <laughs> well, and I, you can, if you're a Brandon Sanderson fan like I am, um, you understand instantly why they picked him to finish a dead guy's very intricately plotted universe because um, you just know he's not going to miss, you know, he's not going to leave any stones unturned. He's not going to retcon if he can avoid it. Um, you can just trust him to be very, very intricate on the way he picks that up. And um, in Edward the App, uh, there's an analyze feature, and I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about about how that works. Yeah, so um, right now that feature is more or less in beta. There's a couple of different analyses you can do to... Um, there's one called the AI Ghostwriter that uses uh, artificial intelligence to write the next sentence of your novel based on what you've already written. Um, and it spits out what it spits out is mostly nonsense because computers can't write novels. Uh, but it's interesting and it's a good way to think about where you're going. Um, and then there's a couple of more basic analyses that um, one of them tells you what words you use the most barring extremely common words like articles and conjunctions. Uh, and then one that lets you measure your usage of a particular word over time. Uh, you know, the analysis feature is going to be phased out soon because it's not very popular, um, not very well used, and I'm going to be replacing it with um, an artificially intelligent writing assistant that if you you know, if it detects that you're kind of stuck and not going anywhere, it's going to pop up, um, you know, a, a tip or a suggestion that's specific to your writing and where you're at. Uh, on that note, so there are there are programs that people have written that write novels. Um, uh, <laughs> there are some writers who write like they are programs uh, who write novels. Uh, what's your opinion on the on the state of affairs the next ten years with with AI and uh, let's say let's say not novels but stories do you think ais will be able to write good stories in the next 10 years um i'm gonna say no uh and i that may be an unpopular opinion um but with my understanding of ai and my understanding of writing uh both of i mean those are my top two things i understand or i or that i claim to understand uh I don't think the next 10 years or even the next 20 years is going to have a very good unsupervised AI written story, even a short story. Um, and, and you maybe see those tweets uh, that are like, I forced an AI to read 500 um, horror novels and this is what it came up with. Um, and some people don't know. Those are those are jokes. Um, people are people are writing those and passing them off as AI because it's funny to do so. Uh, but as far as, let's see, I'm trying to think where else I've seen this. I, there was, um, an AI that supposedly wrote a chapter of Harry Potter. Um, and if you look into it, that one was supervised as well. The AI was presenting options and humans were choosing which of the options to place based on coherence and humor. Um, I think the lesson there is that AI is really good at helping us understand data and see patterns and trends. It's terrible at making decisions for us. And so I think the future of technology and writing, specifically AI, is that it will help us to understand ourselves and our writing. Um, it'll help us to have ideas and to understand options. But 
you said an AI loose. I don't think it's ever going to write the next Stephen King short story or, um, or even the next, you know, dime store romance novel. Um, I don't think that they have the capacity at this point, um, or even close to having the capacity for coherence, which is something that we demand so strongly from writing. Um, so yeah, I'm going to say no on that one. Yeah, I think uh, I probably know a lot less about the technology than you do, but um, uh, I'm totally with you in that in that conclusion. Um, I think most people are bad at writing uh, <laughs> and uh, bad at understanding things, to be frank. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea that, that often the very people who are bad at writing and understanding things are going to create the technology to do those things is uh, kind of counterintuitive to put it the, in the best way. Um, so with that strong opinion stated, um, uh, so uh, you uh, have edited a book called Your First Year in Code. I was saying before we started the interview that uh, we were really glad to see this book when it popped up on LeanPub. Uh, it's, it's a great book uh, for people who are getting started. And one of the things that I particularly like about it is it's, it's, it's approach to telling you the things that you otherwise normally wouldn't be told. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I've got a little story that I like to trot out on the podcast every once in a while where, um, you know, everybody hears the story about Quentin Tarantino, you know, was working in the video store, and then suddenly he was a famous director. But he's actually told the, the story connected the dots where he was one of his co workers worked out with Harvey Keitel's girlfriend. And that's how he got his script for Reservoir Dogs to Harvey Keitel. And actually hearing those the, the actual dot to dot details, of how to get started in things is something that people usually skip over. What was the, uh, what, what was the inspiration for this book? Was it, was it your idea or was it, was it something that you came up with in discussions with others? Uh, it was originally my idea. Yes. Uh, I mean, the situation I was in, um, I had a lot of old blog posts kicking around that were still racking up, you know, tens of thousands of hits that were aimed towards beginners in code. Um, and kind of, I, I used uh, some of the things I learned in my English major and some of the things I picked up just writing to write things in a way um, that was just simpler than than other writers. I mean, the, the things I was writing about have been written about hundreds of times, but generally by people who, who perhaps weren't able to get themselves in the mindset of an audience who has never touched code or is very new with it. Um, so I think that was the sweet spot was I, I knew there was a market um, and a demand for well-written uh, content about code that was written very simply and that understood, you know, that had an understanding of the mind of a person who hasn't been coding for 20 years. Um, so I had all this content um, and I decided it was probably time to put it together into a long form, um, into a book. And uh, where I wanted to go with that was a book for absolute beginners. Um, and there were a lot of things that I knew I knew I have I know I have blind spots um, and biases, and I wanted to cover as many bases as I could. So I put out an open call um, on dev.to for people to join with me and contribute to the book. And within a couple of weeks, almost 100 people had signed up to either contribute content or beta read the book. 
um, or participate as a translator in a, a bunch of different um, a different ways of contributing. And uh, so I, I set us a pr pretty tight publishing schedule. This all happened in March, and I wanted to publish uh, in July last month. And so um, in pretty short order, we had whittled down those 100 people to the ones who were really committed and had the time and the availability. Um, and we got a lot of excellent content um, and kind of compiled it all together into one book. Uh, one, I'll ask you a version of a question that we that's often asked on this podcast, uh, which is, do you wish you'd studied computer science? Yes and no. Um, my concern is if I had studied computer science, my concern is that I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. Uh, I kind of wish I had studied economics, um, which is which is an odd thing. I loved my economics class in college. I feel like that would have given me some math skills that I don't really have and that I'm having to learn on the fly um, at work. Um, and it's a more sciencey field, so that would have been helpful as well. Um, but I also got a lot from my English degree, uh, like I said, transferable skills that um, that really made makes programming. Um, you know, it lets me bring some unique skills to the programming table. Uh, so I, I don't. I have mixed feelings on that one, I guess. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. I um, you know, I've I've interviewed people who did study and regretted it, who didn't study computer science and regretted it, um, who you know think it was the right decision when they were starting out, but wouldn't necessarily be the right decision to do it now. Uh, and it, and it seems to vary uh, a great deal across people's um, personalities and experiences. So there's no that thanks thanks for that 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 great answer. It's um it's always nice to hear a new perspective. Um, and so what is the thing that you wish you had you most if you could pick one thing you wish you'd known before you got started in your first job as a programmer? What's what's that bit of knowledge? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I I wish I had known that imperfection is is okay in code um and I've, I've talked about this online a little bit but i as a junior developer um i often came into a project or a concept with this idealistic attitude um best practices and um modern ideas and design patterns and all these things that i i wanted to apply and i've learned that good software is built on compromises and uh, maybe that applies to other fields as well but uh, I've learned that it's okay for something to not be as fast as it could be as long as it's fast enough um, and it's okay for something to not be as extensible as it could be if it's extensible enough I've, I've learned the art of I've heard it called satisficing where you if you're doing something good enough um, Beyond that, there's just diminishing returns most of the time. And if there are problems, then they'll come up and you can address them. But yeah, I wish I'd had a better understanding of how essential compromise is to software. Um, you know, so many software books uh, present this ideal, uh, perfect, celestial idea of code, this really elegant project or, um, 
you know, this, these 10 lines of code that are just absolutely perfect. And that isn't the norm. And I think we do people a disservice when we focus too much on those rather than on the, you know, the somewhat clunky, maybe imperfect piece of code that does the job and only took 10 minutes to write instead of five years in a research team. And uh, did it take you a while to gain the confidence to have that approach? I imagine that, I mean, I'm not, not a programmer myself, but I imagine that when you're getting started, you sort of like, it's sort of natural to feel and imperative to get everything perfect mm-hmm. because you may be worried about getting fired or something like that. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky in that my first job out of college, uh, my team was spectacular. Uh, shout out to Devin and Brian and Dan. Um, they were really practical, down-to-earth people that didn't care one bit uh, when I made a mistake as long as um, as long as long I fixed it. And um, there was never any... Um, never any sense of comparison or king of the hill or trying to, you know, trying to out program each other. It was all about, let's, you know, let's get this done and let's keep ourselves sane. And, uh, they taught me most of what I know about good code. Um, and so I, no, I didn't really have, I had a pretty safe environment is what I'm saying. I felt emotionally safe, um, and so I think that came to me a lot quicker than it does to a lot of other programmers. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I mean, as I'm sure you have, I've, I've met some people who've been, been burned. And in, in fact, for some people, their whole career feels like a big burn, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the kind of corporate environment that they might, they might find themselves in. Um, on that note, you've, you uh, co-wrote an uh, essay in the book called Getting Your First Job. Mm-hmm. I was wondering what advice you might have for anyone listening to this podcast who's, you know, going out to try to get their first job. What would you, what are a couple of things you'd recommend to them? Uh, you know, that chapter is, is very practical and very, um, it's very bullet pointy. And so I'm trying to think through and pick maybe some of the best gems of wisdom from it. Um, one thing I'd say is don't, uh, don't undervalue yourself um, and don't tell yourself no. I mean, if you're not qualified for the job, they will tell you that. You probably don't need to make that judgment um, for yourself before the fact. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people go out with this attitude of, you know, if if it's an unpaid internship, if it's if it doesn't pay enough, if it's a bad environment, you know, maybe I deserve, maybe that's all I deserve. Um, and I would say, don't, you know, don't let yourself think that way. Maybe, uh, you know, try to see the best version of yourself or, um, find a mentor to help you see that version of yourself. And then that's the version that comes out in the job search and in the interview and in follow up calls, uh, just to make sure that you start off on the strongest foot you can. Um, and the other thing is, uh, you know, don't, don't give up too soon. It, it can seem like a really tough job market for junior developers because everyone wants a senior developer who knows 15 frameworks and twice as many languages, uh, who doesn't exist by the way. Um, and they want that senior developer to accept a salary, uh, of half the average wage in the United States. Um, there's a lot of really ridiculous job postings out there. 
and it can make junior developers feel like they don't belong. And I'd say uh, you do belong, and there are companies that will hire you and uh, places where you will fit in and be allowed to make mistakes and learn. Um, it's just it, sometimes it's a long process. Um, honestly, depending on the way you learned to code, it can take um, several months to a year to find a job. But it gets easier from there. It gets a lot better. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, I hope that people who are getting started will, you know, be able to be kind to themselves and give themselves time because uh, that's the hardest part is the first job. On that note, actually, one, one thing I'm really curious about uh, is remote work. Um, LeanPub has a remote team. We're, we're a remote, remote team. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I love working remotely. Um, but also my first experience with uh, having a professional life was not remote. And I'm wondering what, what you think is better. If, is, it, is it better to, when you're starting out with your first job in programming uh, to work in an office with other people around? than it is to start out by working remotely? I think both versions can work. Uh, for a company that has a strong remote culture and understands um, how to onboard people remotely, I think um, a remote job can be an excellent first job. Uh, and most companies um, are a little weak on that end. Um, so it, it may be better in a lot of cases to try to get an on-site job at first. Uh, although I'm a huge advocate for remote work myself because um, I'm an introvert. And so if I am at an office all day surrounded by people, I don't have much energy left in the evening to, uh, to go to parties and stuff. So remote work has been fantastic for me. I currently work remote at Health Catalyst, um, and it's been just incredible. Uh, but people generally figure out pretty quickly what they like best. Some people really prefer an on-site environment, and some people prefer a remote environment. One thing most of us have in common, though, is we don't like the open floor plan office because um, when the sales team is on, at the desk next to yours making you know, 15 calls and you're trying to think through a difficult piece of code, uh, that's sort of an impossible situation. So um, beyond that, it's a matter of personal taste. And uh, remote work is kind of having a, a grassroots, um, you know, it's growing, it's becoming very popular. And I think a reason for that is because uh, it's easier to find talent when you're not restricted to the nearest, you know, a radius of 50 miles. Um, so I think that's the direction things are going. But there are still plenty of companies that hire on site for people who prefer that. Yeah, thank, thanks very much for that answer. Um, just my, my two cents. I'm, I'm uh, not so much an introvert myself, but I uh, really hate arbitrary conventions. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea that everyone needs to get to the office at the same time at like nine in the morning at the same time as everybody else is getting to their office in the same part of a city uh, has always, always struck me as absolutely ridiculous. Um, and there's all kinds of other sort of conventions around co-located work uh, that aren't really related to being efficient or getting things done. Mm -hmm. uh, that that can be very frustrating to people who are who are sensitive to them. Um, personally, I'm also a, I'm a late to bed, late to rise person, and so remote work works really well for me mm -hmm. uh, in a way that um, 
co-located work doesn't work so well. Uh, and one of the things I think that's so great about the growing convention for remote work is that it's just acknowledging the reality that people are different from each other. Uh, we're not all the same. Uh, and having ways of working that take that into account are uh, just better uh, yeah. and more realistic. Uh, you know, because one of the, just sorry to go on, but, you know, one of the frustrating things I found about, you know, in, in my time doing co-located work was uh, that people thought it was hard ass to be dumb uh, <laughs> about how work was done. Uh, and it was always, I always found it very frustrating. Um, and so uh, you talk a little bit about uh, how you got the book together. How, can you explain a little bit about how you, so you were managing, you know, a, a, a group of different people. How did you go around uh, doing that? Did people submit manuscripts to you? Uh, did you have a central database where you kept them all? Yeah, I managed the project with Trello. Um, and I love Trello a lot. I think it's a great thing for simple projects like this. Uh, but I, I basically managed it in phases and the rest of it was all the communication was via email. So, um, people that wanted to get involved would email me. Um, and the first thing we did was talk about topics because I didn't want five people writing about the same, writing the same chapter basically. So, um, we divvied those out, all the different topics we wanted to address. And then it was, uh, it was kind of a back and forth. I mean, anyone who's been in a, in a college English class knows the process. There's the first draft and the peer review and the second draft and the peer review and the final draft and uh, the professor's notes. And um, so it was very much a back and forth collaborative process. Um, a lot of hours editing on my part. Um, and uh, so the, the chapters, the book now is, it looks very different from it did from what how it looked on those first few days uh because that's you know that's the writing process is lots of revisions and rewrites and um so we've we've got a number of writing modes on lean pub you chose the dropbox writing mode did you and I, i'm sure this is where we get into the weeds part of the interview uh, but so for people who are working on projects like this of their own um did you give other people access to the Dropbox folder that you were working in or did you sort of manage everything? No, I was the kind of the hub for everything. Um, not that I didn't trust my writers, but I thought it was easier for them to, um, to, to go via email rather than trying to learn a system and, um, you know, keep everything in sync and not have to work and have to worry about trampling someone else's work. Uh, I managed all that on my own and it was, I mean, since I was working with coders, uh, almost everyone knew Markdown, which made it really easy. So uh, people would send me Markdown files, and I could just drop them in my Dropbox folder and have them sync to LeanPub uh, almost immediately. So uh, that was really convenient. Uh, so you didn't have to do... I, I see that your book was in um, LeanPub-flavored Markdown. Um, mm -hmm. So your experience, you didn't have to do a lot of kind of tutoring? Uh, no, not at all. Uh I mean, it, we ran into a couple of formatting issues the first time I ran a preview, but, um, you know, I Googled them and there was the documentation page. So, uh, yeah, people, there were some different, like some, some of the chapters came through with different, uh, headings, um, different levels of headings, I mean, and, uh, different forms of emphasis or, um, you know, this and that, but it was all pretty manageable to make it all, uh, uniform. 
And uh, if you don't mind my asking about the details, how are you handling uh, royalties? Uh, yeah, happy to talk about that. I, um, all the co-authors signed an agreement that um, they'd be receiving a portion and uh, basically the way we're dividing it up is of the royalties we get from LeanPub, um, 10% is going to the nonprofit Girls Who Code and uh, 10% is going to dev.to uh, for their help you know, marketing and promoting the book. Um, I'm taking 20% and then the, the remaining 60% is being split evenly between all the co-authors. Okay. Okay. And, uh, so, so you, you basically, uh, receive all the royalties yourselves when we pay you and, mm-hmm. and then you split it out according to the agreement with all your co-authors. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah thanks very much for sharing that, 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 that kind of thing can be very tricky. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it takes a lot of trust. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm flattered that my co-authors trust me, um, with that. And I, uh, I'm trying very hard to preserve that and keep them updated on, you know, how the book is doing and where our royalties are at. But, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to that, that first payout in October. It's really, it's really just on that note. It's, um, it's in the sort of publishing world news now, uh, our, it surfaces from time to time, but transparency around payments mm-hmm. and royalties are something that, you know, people who, uh, use lean pub might, you know, be very surprised to, discover that it's often actually very hard to get any transparency at all. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're an author and you have like a signed contract with a publisher, uh, what their sales, what your sales, what even your own sales are like, uh, and that kind of transparency can just be, just makes things very efficient in a way that they wouldn't be otherwise. Um, yeah. You know, occasionally I read about um, an author finding out that their book is a New York times bestseller from the New York times. And, I feel like you should learn that from your agent or from your publisher, maybe. Anyway. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's it's just on that note. Yeah, I mean, what I was thinking of in particular was library sales. A lot of authors, I mean, basically no author really knows what their library sales are or what, mm-hmm. what cut they're getting because you know, the, the deals can be so Byzantine um, and the publishers often just keep that information to themselves. Yeah, uh, it's very it's very strange when you first encounter it that that's actually conventional. Yeah, and I, I read that uh, you know on, on most deals with the publisher, there's an advance of five to ten thousand dollars, and most authors uh, most authors don't earn that out. Um, they don't get any royalties on top of that, and so yeah, I agree that um, if you want transparency and you want to you know earn what your book is worth, it seems like. A, e-publishing and self-publishing is the way to go yeah definitely definitely if you want to be in control uh you want to you want to be in control (laughs) um uh so the last question i always like to ask on this podcast of lean pub authors is uh if there was one thing we could fix for you or one thing one feature we could build for you what would you ask us to do oh let's see uh you know, I, that's a hard one. I tried out a few different platforms when I was first looking into publishing platforms. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have picked LeanPub if I thought there was anything, you know, serious, any serious issues that would make it hard to work with. And I've even after that, I've been pleasantly surprised. Uh, and so I, uh, apologies if it sounds like I'm sucking up. But uh, I it's hard for me to think of anything off the top of my head that I wish was better. Um 
it, it all seems pretty ideal, especially considering that I'm I'm not on any of the uh, premium plans. I'm just uh, I'm on the free plan. So yeah, that's I'd have to think about that one honestly. Okay, well, thanks thanks very much for that answer. Um, it's actually um, you know it's that's actually a pretty standard standard answer that people sometimes give, which is you know everything just well it, sorry if I'm talking to someone who's a programmer and they've uh-huh. encountered LeanPub, they're like, everything just works. Uh-huh. Uh, non-programmers don't always have the same <laughs> experience. Uh, but yeah, if you, if you do think of anything at any point, uh, please feel free to just shoot me an email and get in touch because uh, we always love to hear from authors uh, about their p- pain points or things. And like, and in your, you've got the experience of building an authoring tool yourself. So obviously uh, you'd be a great, uh, source of criticism for us, uh, I think, if you ever uh, have any thoughts to share. So, well, thank you very much, Isaac, for taking the time out of your day to do this interview. And thanks for choosing LeanPub as a platform for your book. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.